It's amazing how this church continues to produce good readers. <laughs> Thank you for reading the word. <clears throat> uh, good morning, River Hills Church. Uh, it's my joy to be with you again. Uh, and this time, without COVID, um, without a mask, last time you may remember, uh, I had COVID with a mask. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate, I'm sorry, do I need to turn this on there? Do you want me to use this or this? Either? Okay. All right. <clears throat> so one of the things I appreciate about the Evangelical Free Church uh, is its history of working together to spread the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. Uh, uh, this mission is what has joined the uh, Evangelical Free Churches together. Christ and his mission has been and continues to be the uniting motivation of the Evangelical Free Churches of America. And uh, uh, this morning, uh, from our text in Acts 1, I want to speak about the mission of Jesus that unites us together. And I'll do so uh, under three headings. The first of which um, is that Jesus' mission is our mandated priority. Uh, Jesus has not been with us for nearly 2,000 years, uh, but during this time, the work of bringing the good news of the kingdom to all nations has not stopped. I love how Luke begins his second narrative to Theophilus, or um, as some have sur surmised, to all those who are lovers of God, which is what Theophilus means. Uh, Luke says that uh, in his first narrative, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, giving the clear implication that now he is writing about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And although Acts does record a few personal appearances of Jesus, think Apostle Paul, uh, and credits him with healings and with adding thousands to the church, most of Jesus's doing and teaching in, in Acts is through the Holy Spirit-filled apostles. It appears that Luke wants us to recognize that the spread of the good news about Jesus and his kingdom by his chosen apostles and others, is the continuing work of Jesus. I would also say that it's the continuing work of the triune God. And you're gonna see even here in this section of scripture in Acts, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit behind the mission of Jesus. So Luke ended his gospel narrative, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Luke ended his uh, gospel of, uh, narrative with Jesus also making, um, saying to his disciples, I'm sorry, I've lost, I've lost my thought here. Um, so yeah, Luke ended his gospel narrative with Jesus saying to the disciples uh, in the book, in, in the gospel that Luke wrote, he said, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. 
And here at the beginning of Acts, in verse 8, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, In fact, this verse provides a pretty good overview uh, of the whole book of Acts. Acts 1-8, chapters 1 through 7, is Christ's work in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 is Christ's work in in Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13 through 28 is Christ's work going out further and further. Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome, uh, the very center of the world's power, where he continues to proclaim Christ and his kingdom. Luke's purpose in Acts is to show that the outward movement and spread of the gospel to all people is the mission of the resurrected and exalted Messiah. And his disciples were undertaking this in accordance with his command. Let me interject at this point uh, just to say something about the English word nations that's found in a lot of the uh, commissioning texts uh, of Jesus. Uh, Nations is translated from the Greek word ethne and is probably best understood to refer to groups of people and not nations as we think of them. Uh, There's a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament uh, and other early Christian literature. It's a recognized standard lexicon. Uh, It concludes from their study that the primary definition of the word ethnos, which is a singular uh, of ethne, is a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. So people groups is a better way to understand this term. And this is important when we consider the task Uh, of missions, as there are only about 190 nations in the world, but there are over 12,000 people groups. That the mission of Jesus is to be prioritized by his disciples, um, uh, and which Acts makes clear, all those united to him by faith, is seen in verse 8, when Jesus declares that the Holy Spirit Uh, When the Holy Spirit comes on them, they will be his witnesses to the end of the earth. This is actually the second part of Jesus' answer to the disciples' question, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This question, in my opinion, is actually a misguided question because Jesus' mission was not about Israel's restoration to being a sovereign nation, but it was about Israel's king subduing the whole earth. The apostles had significant misconceptions about the promised Christ and his kingdom, uh, which prior to and following his death and resurrection, Jesus was correcting. So here Jesus responds to their question by first telling them, that it's not for them to know the times and the seasons set by the Father, that he is fixed by his own authority. And then he tells them, they will be witnesses all over the world. It's as if Jesus uh, 
told them to not get caught up with questions about God's timetable and things they cannot know, but to get on with what they do know, their master's mission. And verses 10 and 11 give the same sense. Uh, We're told that a couple of angels, I I think the the, uh, men in white robes are probably angels, uh, that these angels are telling the disciples uh, to get their heads out of the clouds and get moving. And the angels tell them that this ascending to heaven, Jesus will return just as he departed, which suggests motivation to be about the master's mission until he returns. I wonder if this stirred the recollection of the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas. Or maybe they remember Jesus saying, blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. What's certain though is that Jesus wanted his apostles to make his mission their priority. This is an important word for us today, uh, as what is happening with the nation of Israel is certainly causing the church again to think end time scenarios and raise questions about God's timetable and even speculate about things we cannot know. Of course, there's nothing wrong with uh, studying eschatology. It's a fascinating area of theology. In fact, it can be quite edifying, and it can be a great encourager to us to remain faithful to Christ and to his mission. But it can also be a distraction, and it's important for God's people, regardless of what's happening in the world, to keep Jesus' mission as a priority. Until Christ returns, which verse 11 assures us he will, The gospel of the kingdom is to go forth. We should be in prayer for sure about what's happening in Israel and Palestine. We should pray that God will open hearts to the truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that in him alone is true shalom for the world found. Keep in mind that many of the unreached people groups in the world are Islamic and the gospel still needs to reach them. You may have noticed in verse 8, this is interesting, it's, it's more of a declaration uh, than an imperative. It's basically declaring that witnessing is what will happen once the Holy Spirit is given. Verse 2 and verse 4, however, indicates that waiting for the Holy Spirit and testifying about Jesus were among the commands given by the risen Savior prior to his ascension. Matthew's version of the Great Commission uh, is clearly an imperative. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always to the end of of the age. Clearly then the work of preaching the gospel to all people groups and making disciples is mandated by our risen Lord. It is not a suggestion. It's not optional. 
To embrace Christ is to embrace his mission. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all nations, and then the end will come. And this work has not yet been completed. Of the over 12,000 people groups in the world, there remains over 7,000 that are unreached. Unreached mean there's no uh, viable group of Christians or churches that are able to reach their country uh, for Christ. And there's over 3,000 of that 7,000 without any active engagement of the gospel whatsoever. Three, over 3,000 people groups where no one is bringing the gospel of Christ to them. There remains much work to do for the people of God. Jesus wants his church to always be moving outward with his gospel. So the mission of Jesus is mandated by our master, and it is to be a, a priority. And the mission of Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this text mentions the suffering of Jesus uh, and the many proofs of Jesus being alive after his death, as he made many appearances to his chosen apostles over a period of 40 days. The focus of the text, however, is on the promise of the Holy Spirit, who will empower the apostles to continue the work of Jesus in taking the gospel to all people groups of the world. Verses 2, 5, and 8 all mention the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you'll notice, to be given is the same Spirit that dwelt in Jesus. We're told by Luke that the commands of Jesus were given through the Holy Spirit. Luke Gospel tells us uh, of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism and tells us that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face off with Satan. And then following his victory over the evil one, we are told that Jesus returns from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Shortly after this, in a synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus read from a portion of Isaiah and said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think Jesus is really excited reading this. After reading, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was declaring himself to be the Holy Spirit anointed Messiah who was here to proclaim good news of liberation. Here in Acts 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit will be given in accordance with the promise of the Father. As Jesus had declared, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in verse 8, Jesus tells them that when they receive the Holy Spirit, they will be his 
witnesses. You can't miss that. The Holy Spirit empowers people for the task of being witnesses of the crucified and resurrected Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, speaks of Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers people to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit fills God's people to boldly speak the gospel. The role of the Holy Spirit among the world of lost people is evangelism. The late Ben Swatsky, who was a missionary, uh, pioneer missionary church planter uh, and served as executive director of the Evangelical Free Church of America International Mission for 12 years, uh, he wrote a book called uh, Intimacy with God. Great devotional book, by the way. Um, I like the clever way that uh, Ben refers to the various roles of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is our comforting counselor our resident rabbi, our superintending guide, our persistent gardener, and our patient intercessor. In regards to the role of the Holy Spirit among the lost, he says the Holy Spirit is the convicting apologist and the convincing evangelist. He writes, the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father to testify on behalf of Jesus Christ, the Son. He is in the world to provide a powerful testimony for all that is true about Jesus Christ. His work as the convincing apologist is extremely important for the missionary task. And Ben further ponders, how will Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists ever come to know Christ apart from the work of Christ, and I, uh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And I would add, for that matter, uh, how would atheists and relativists and those living in post-truth America ever come to faith in Christ without the Holy Spirit constructing a case for the truth of the gospel suited for the various persuasions and contexts of people's lives? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Without the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, our efforts are futile. Ben also writes, it's not natural for a lost person to admit being a sinner and in need of a savior. But this is precisely what the Holy Spirit helps him to do. The convicting evangelist brings the proud, arrogant person to stand before our holy God with head bowed in silent shame and with heart pleading for mercy. And praise the Lord, he receives it. The Holy Spirit is, the indis is indispensable to the work of Christ. And so in John 15, 26, uh, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Unless you think this relieves us of any responsibility to witness, <laughs> the next verse, Jesus says, and you also, you also will bear witness because you have been with me 
from the beginning. Both the Holy Spirit and disciples of Jesus are said to bear witness to Jesus. As you read through Acts, you cannot miss the connection between the Holy Spirit and power to proclaim the message of the gospel. Here in 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out uh, the recipients, what happens? They speak in the mother tongues of people of many languages. In Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and it says he spoke about Jesus. Later, uh, after the disciples were threatened, uh, if they continue speaking about Jesus, chapter 4, verse 29, it says that the believers raised their voices to God and prayed. And this is a wonderful prayer for our mission task. And now, Lord, consider their threats. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Disciples are made when the good news of the person and work of Jesus, who is God's appointed, anointed Savior and ruler, is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the gospel is being proclaimed and disciples are making disciples and churches are producing more churches, you can be certain that the Holy Spirit is behind it. And these kind of movements, disciples making disciples, churches producing churches, um, are happening all over the world today. Do you know that? There's right now roughly about 1,900 such movements that are being observed in the world. Something to really give praise to God for. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Disciples are being made, churches are being reproduced. And where gospel movement is occurring, it has been observed there is always extraordinary prayer connected to it. We are foolish to undertake Christ's mission without dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit empowerment is connected to the prayers of God's people. So the mission of Jesus is a mandated priority. The mission of Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And lastly, the the mission of Jesus is a kingdom enterprise. I wish I had 40 days like Jesus did to talk about this. I don't. I don't even have 40 minutes left. Um, uh, (laughs) Do I have 40 minutes? (laughs) Uh, You you will notice that in verse 3... That during the 40 days after his resurrection, while Jesus was appearing and providing convincing proofs of his his being alive, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. I'm confident that Jesus during this time was talking about other things as well. 
Remember his meeting with Peter, um, reinstituting uh, Peter as a servant. Uh, uh, but, but Luke here in Acts wants to point out that for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. Luke is intentionally pointing this out. And Luke not only mentions God's kingdom at the beginning of Acts, but he also ends Acts with Paul in prison proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. And besides these bookend references in Acts, Luke also uses kingdom language throughout Acts. For example, Acts 2.36, after Peter explains how God had promised uh, to seat a descendant of David on his throne, kingdom language, he testifies that God has made the crucified and resurrected Jesus both Lord and Christ, a kingdom declaration. In Acts 8.12, Philip, the evangelist Philip, is mentioned as proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 8.12. Acts 8.20.27, Paul, when saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, summarized his work among them. He's summarizing, Paul's summarizing his work among the Ephesians and the elders. And he says to them, I was going about preaching the kingdom. He summarizes his work among them as going about preaching the kingdom. It shouldn't surprise us that the resurrected Jesus was talking kingdom or that the ongoing work of Jesus is framed by the kingdom of God because Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, was always talking about the kingdom of God. After all, he was the promised messianic king. Luke, early in his gospel, records the angel Gabriel telling Mary this about Jesus. Your child will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. From before his birth, Jesus' identity and mission were understood against the backdrop of his being the descendant of King David who establishes God's eternal kingdom on earth. And as such, you would expect him to talk about the kingdom. And he did. A lot. Jesus began his ministry announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. He told many parables about the kingdom. Several of them that begin like this. The kingdom of God is like. Remember that? And you can probably fill in the blank with a few things. Kingdom of God is like a net. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And on and on. You can probably remember others. Besides the parables, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is seen by many as providing instructions for how citizens of Christ's kingdom are to live in this world. It begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are, right? Uh, which start 
and end with the promise that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit and those persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes also have kingdom bookends. Not only did Jesus talk about the kingdom, uh, but the message that Jesus and his disciples proclaimed is referred to as the good news of the kingdom of God. And the seed, you might not have noticed this, but the seed that is sown in the parable of the sower is referred to as the word about the kingdom. And you know what? Entrance into this kingdom was a subject of great interest. Do you remember what Jesus said would be true if one's righteousness didn't surpass that of the Pharisees? Do you remember? They wouldn't enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will what? Will enter the kingdom of God. And don't forget the well-known verse in John 3.3, 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Entering God's kingdom was a subject Jesus spoke about. Paul did too. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians that the sexually immoral, the impure, the greedy, nor the idolaters will inherit the kingdom of God. And Peter talked about it too. In 2 Peter 1, Peter declares that people growing in godly qualities of faith will be provided a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So scripturally, there's an extensive basis for understanding the person and mission of Jesus in light of the kingdom of God. And this has many significant ramifications to a lot of areas of theology. But I just want to share three of these as it relates to Christ's mission and our mission. First, understanding mission in light of God's kingdom means the message we proclaim about the person and work of Jesus should include not only the sacrificial and substitutionary giving of himself as our high priest, but also Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the highest place of authority to reign as universal king. We should testify to both the cross of Christ as well as the crown of Christ. Second, our evangelism in light of God's kingdom is not only a call to receive by faith the grace of Christ's priestly work on our behalf in providing forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and ongoing life in the age to come, but it's also a call to confess that Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed king. Jesus is Lord, and it's a call to submit to his rule. Our evangelism should not be geared to bring assurance to people that when they die, they will go to heaven as their final destiny. This is a major misconception that we have in our culture and in Europe, other places around the world. 
It should be geared to making devoted disciples of Jesus who live faithfully and fruitfully as citizens of God's kingdom. The gospel of Christ produces servants of God who obey Christ, who become more and more like Christ and carry on the mission of Christ to bring redemption and restoration to the whole earth. And thirdly, uh, with the kingdom of God as our backdrop of Jesus' mission, our hope and the hope we need to give to people is not that of escaping a world that will ultimately be destroyed, but of inheriting the earth that will ultimately be made new. Consider this. Jesus taught us to pray. When you did, uh, spoke with the children, Steve, I thought you were going to use this verse, but you, you did the one uh, above it, which is great. But Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, again in the Beatitudes, uh, the meek will inherit the earth. In Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43, the earth is referred to as God's kingdom. Look this up. It's pretty neat to see this. The earth's referred to as God's kingdom from which all those who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness will be removed and thrown into the blazing furnace. But the righteous remain and shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. And consider this clear statement from Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Scripturally, the, the final destiny, not saying Christians in this age, when they die, they don't go to heaven. They do, right? They're absent from the bodies, present with the Lord. But it's not the final destiny of the saints. Scripturally, the final destiny of those who are in Christ is not a bodiless existence in heaven, but an eternal existence with a resurrected, incorruptible, immortal, spiritual body in God's kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope. That's a hope that drives our mission. This is the hope that's proclaimed in the gospel of Christ and the gospel of his kingdom. The mission of Jesus, who is the Christ, is to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And this was made possible through Jesus' obedience unto death. After he was raised, he was asked um, by his, uh, he, he, he asked his bewildered followers, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory? And it became clear to the disciples that at the heart of the good news of the kingdom is a king, the Christ, who died for sins according to Scripture, was buried, raised from the dead on the third day according to Scripture, and appeared to hundreds. Through faith in Jesus, people are forgiven, made new by God's Spirit, and become obedient servants to fulfill God's purposes in this world. In conclusion, Jesus' mission 
is our mission. It's our mandate. Let's seek God to know how to prioritize it, how to make it the priority he wants it to have. Jesus' mission is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Let's have sustained prayer for the Spirit's fullness. Pray for your missionaries. Praise you. Pray for the people of, this is Rock County? Yeah, we have Polk County in Florida. Yeah, Rock County. Pray for the unbelievers around you in your Jerusalem, in your Judea, in your Samaria, and in all the unreached countries of the world. Pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And walk in dependence upon him as we engage with the world in bondage. Jesus' mission is a kingdom enterprise. Let's proclaim a message and offer a hope that reflects this. In the power of the Holy Spirit, let's proclaim the cross and the crown of Christ so that more and more people will know the grace and the power of the risen Christ, being delivered from all evil, living lives worthy of the Lord, and sharing in the hope of unending life in God's restored earth, and so live. Uh, please pray with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we praise you as our exalted Savior, our Lord. You are our great King. We thank you that you are continuing your mission of bringing God's kingdom to earth as in heaven through the proclamation of Christ crucified and risen to all peoples of the world. May your mission have the priority among your people that it deserves. May you empower your servants with your Holy Spirit so that we'll boldly testify about you and your kingdom to those who don't know you. And help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness as we wait for your glorious return and life forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen.